0: All right, let's pause. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for the completed canon. Thank you for leading us in the study of it. Thank you for the Logos, the same word that you sent out of heaven incarnate, your Son, our Lord and Savior take away the sin of the world, to pay that debt so that we might enjoy an evening like this, so that we might better understand through salvation and sanctification what grace and love actually is, and that love hung on a cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt. Thank you. We ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel Salvation and Sanctification, part 65. On Tuesday, we began with the Spirit reiterating some of the glue that's been holding our lessons together, as if to say, you know, here are some Lego pieces, and it's like I've been teaching now for years, The manner in which he goes about presenting us with this curriculum is that he dives deep, he shows us some of the weeds, and then he pulls us out and says, don't forget the forest for the sake of the trees. And so we've been doing a little bit of both, sort of oscillating in and out, sort of. Um, And so he's really, as if to say, here are some of the Lego pieces, the individual building blocks. Let's now put them together to create a bigger picture view. For starters, up here on the board, and again, this was something that came out on Tuesday evening's lesson, humility in the supernatural life, it's only that person with a humble attitude of surrender that receives the utmost grace of God in his experience. It's the humble person that lives by faith. Romans one seventeen says that. Making that life righteous in the eyes of God. For every perfect gift is from above, James 1:17. Again, humility in the supernatural life. There's a certain aspect, uh, reality to humility that uh, sort of super uh, precedes the supernatural life. And again, it's only that person with a humble attitude of surrender. Surrender came up a few times on Tuesday that humble attitude of surrender that receives the utmost grace of God. Remember James uh, four six says, God gives grace to the humble. In his experience, since we're talking about experiential sanctification, that's where we're at. We're still, remember, in our overall working framework, we're between positional sanctification and experiential sanctification. And God, the Holy Spirit's had us in between there for a while now, for weeks. And he never makes mistakes so there are certain things that he wants us to realize fully in our souls before we go back into the weeds even on the strict theology of experiential sanctification and so forth so understand that that's what he's been doing it's only that uh, that person with a humble attitude of surrender that receives the utmost grace of god in his experience it's the humble person that lives by faith romans one seventeen. Making that life righteous in the eyes of God. For every perfect gift is from above. James 1.17 And what that means is that's a reference to faith. From faith to faith, the righteous man shall live by faith. Well, we live by something that God gives us. God gives us each a measure of faith, so says Scripture. And so every perfect gift is from above, which means that that's how we are also made righteous. So he says, I'm going to make you righteous in my eyes by giving you the thing that makes you righteous. (laughs) So what do we do? Humility. Accept it. Say thank you. We're going to get to that before the night's end. That the spiritual life really is earmarked by a sense of gratitude always. If you look for that word, look up thanks, thanksgiving, gratitude um, in the Bible and all the other variants of thankfulness in the Bible You're going to be overwhelmed. I started just briefly uh, in the Bible this morning on that vein. And I was a bit overwhelmed. I hadn't done that specifically in the past, strictly speaking. And uh, it really just popped out that the spiritual life, as we're going to see this evening, is earmarked with or for a life of gratitude. And the more that you're sanctified, the more grateful you are the more grateful you are, the more you are being sanctified. We'll get to that. It's not a chicken and egg thing, but it's an interesting thing to contemplate. The Spirit used the supernatural doctrine we call the Trinity, specifically the three persons of the Godhead being one. He used that example to sort of pique the discussion. The Human mind, uh, to the human mind, this can cause major cramps. When you think of three persons of the Godhead being one, it can cause brain cramps up here on the board, but it's a good way to start thinking about supernatural things. Three persons, one Godhead, it's impossible for the human mind to fully articulate the Trinity. Faith strives in the absence of human comprehension. Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, 1 Peter 1, 2. Again, it's impossible, it's, the Trinity is a good example because it's impossible for the human mind to fully articulate it, to comprehend it. Yet faith strives in the absence of human comprehension. So that's a very good thing. It's good that we're stumped, in other words. It's good that we realize that something as fundamental as the Godhead, can't be understood with a finite mind. That's a very good realization to come to. And it's from that position that faith strives. Because otherwise it's not faith. There are certain supernatural things, as the Spirit brought out on Tuesday, that if we saw it all, it wouldn't require faith. Go to Matthew 28, 19. So this is all by design, and you have to think about it that way, that faith strives in the absence of human comprehension. And God made it so. I guess, you know, technically, as our Creator, He could have given us the faculty, the intellect, however you'd like to look at it, to fully comprehend more things. But He didn't. He said, I want you to not be able to rationalize certain things. I want that to be the case because then I'll give you faith that brings glory to me. In the absence of human comprehension, my faith that I give you, uh, the faith that I give you will strive. Uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. When I say strive, it means accomplish His good work. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go to 2 Corinthians 13:14. We are talking about the Trinity here. Go therefore in Matthew 28:19, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity there. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. I'm just bringing you to a few Trinity verses, that's all. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You think you could write a term paper on that? No, seriously. How do you actually fully articulate one verse, that one verse, when the three persons of the Godhead are evidenced How do you do it? (laughs) Pretty difficult, and that's a good thing. Go to 1 Peter 1-2. It's a very good thing to realize that. I believe that he gives a scripture like that. He reveals certain aspects that are out of reach in terms of human comprehension. 1 Peter 1-2. On purpose. To humble us. 1 Peter 1-2. It's one of the values of reading your own Bible because there's going to be times when you read your own Bible on your own time, and hopefully you're all still doing that thing, you're going to say, that's mind-blowing. I can't get my arms around, I can't get my mind around that. And he's going, exactly. It's exactly how I wanted it to be. First Peter 1, two, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure, Again, a Trinity verse, so much to be said there. Again, the point on the board, though, uh, not to get hung up on the Trinity, that was just a proof point, if you would, a lever that he used on Tuesday to prove his point. It's impossible for the human mind to fully articulate the Trinity. Yet faith strives in the absence of human comprehension. In all reality, then, it's good to receive said brain cramps, It's what precipitates, if you would, a need, a chasm to be crossed by faith. It's what precipitates the need for a supernatural faith. You know, everybody's got faith. Guys flying into buildings, you know, these idiots that blew up uh, the airport over in Belgium, uh, they had faith in something. Probably not our God, as far as I know from what the news says. They had faith, but it wasn't this faith. It was some ridiculous faith that drove them to maniacal things, stupidity. We're talking about God's faith, supernatural faith. So it's actually good that you can't, quote, figure out the supernatural. For example, the Trinity, this, quote, failure forces faith's hand in you. Faith must be tested in a believer for it to consummate the confidence necessary to persevere. Now there's probably three or four different doctrines that we've had put on the table over the last couple of weeks in the point on the board, but hopefully it's coming together for you. So it's actually good that you can't figure out every supernatural thing. This failure forces faith's hand in you. You have to come to, you come to a crossroads and you say, well, I just I guess I just got to have faith in God that he's got everything under control. You know, like the Bible says, even though you can't understand how that's possibly true. I mean, how can he you know, think of any divine appointment you've ever had. How could he have possibly ordained that from eternity past, and then lo and behold, boom, you and this person get together, next thing you know, someone's saved. How's he pull all that together when there's a bazillion other people on the earth? <laughs> we can't comprehend that stuff. It's nothing for him. So we have faith that he's got everything under control. Faith must be tested in a believer for it to consummate the confidence necessary to persevere he wants to give you faith because when he gives you faith you are righteous we call that imparted righteousness and anytime righteousness shows up in your life it brings glory to guess who him all glory and honor to God and that's what sanctification that's the essence of sanctification it's why if you want to answer that big question why does he leave us here that's why to bring glory to himself well how he gives us faith. He imparts grace through that faith. Faith being the channel, glory be to Him. We get to see it, though. We get to, quote, experience it in time. 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith. Do you mean all I have to do is let God do this thing in me, through me, despite me? Yes. Step out in faith, do this thing when you least expect it. Boom. He's going to blow your mind, and you're going to have dokimai and the proof of your faith as something precipitated out. Up here on the board, if you say something like, God, why won't you show me why I'm suffering? The answer is because it'd no longer be faith. If he gave you all the answers up front, in other words, it wouldn't require faith, because faith implies something isn't known. You're stepping into the unknown. You're accepting the reality of supernatural phenomenon. Things that you don't have control over. Things that you never have control over. (gasps) Everybody's like, all the white knuckles are like, I hate this. Control freaks, beware. (laughs) But that's the essence of what God's doing in our sanctification. As Scott said it on Tuesday, we learn to kind of let go. The more we grow up, the more we just sort of say, Hey, listen, this is all about faith. God, as I've said in the past, you have that frank conversation with God. God, you made me this way. This is your problem. You know, you're the one who promises to clean up this thing, fix this issue. So if we ask, you know, why don't you show me these things? The answer is because it would no longer be faith. A wonderfully telling verse came out regarding supernatural faith on Tuesday as well. Go to John 4.24. John 4.24. Keep your eyes on the things above. Keep your eyes on your mind's eye right now on big picture items. That's what we're doing. We're surveying. A lot of moving parts in our lessons as of late, but he wants you to keep that big picture in view. John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This short verse is impregnated with much of what the spirits had to say on the fullness of the Trinity being filled The fullness of Christ, the fullness of God, being filled to the fullness of God. Ephesians 3.19, Ephesians 4.13, Ephesians 5.18. We saw God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, Father, the fullness of God, if you would. All in Ephesians 3, 4, and 5. In brief, we might summarize it this way. John 4.24 in view. Supernatural worship, fellowship with the Father is through Christ, Allah in truth. This is grace and truth. Christ is grace and truth. This is assured at salvation, but continues as the basis for sanctification. I'm thinking Romans 1:17 right now, from faith to faith. This is assured at salvation, but continues as the basis for sanctification. At salvation, a man's human spirit is made so that he can comprehend spiritually appraised things, Allah in spirit. This is not possible for unregenerate man. This is precisely why trying to evangelize the intellectually arrogant unbeliever is so difficult. Their entire system of thinking. And often their self-esteem is tied directly to their ability to outreason or outthink their peers. But they're operating here. Supernatural is here. Supernatural. Natural, natural thinking, naturalistic rationalism, blah 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 blah. This is where the super intelligent like to sort of make their case, state their arguments. But we're talking about supernatural and the distinction between natural and supernatural in terms of actually executing the spiritual life is a little thing called faith. So this is precisely why trying to evangelize the intellectually arrogant unbeliever is so difficult because everything they are, their self-esteem even, is based and tied to their ability, to the intellect, to the intellect. And their ability to outreason or outthink their peers. So the danger is as follows they have natural stumbling blocks. Drives me crazy sometimes, drives me bananas actually, because intelligent people are very difficult to deal with in general when it comes to supernatural things. They like science, they like math, they like tangibles. Why? Because they're smart. And they are able to retain knowledge of tangibles and human concepts and scientific theories. And they're able to play this game a lot better than the next person who's not as intelligent. So they rise to the top under the auspices, if you would, of creature credit. And so they become sort of counterfeit happy. They have a a rank so natural stumbling blocks are an issue when you're intellectually superior it's difficult for anyone to contradict your theories even when your theories contradict the Bible a believer will always lose the battle if they concede it can be fought inside the finite realm of human rationalism that's why I have very few arguments I don't deal with quote intelligent unbelievers they, argue, they, they just aggravate the crud out of me. No, for real. What, what do you think Jesus said? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to evangelize these people, this quote, successful people. Now, it's not a carte blanche thing. It's not saying we can't get a camel through once in a while. <laughs> All things are possible with God. But it's really, really difficult. When you're intellectually superior, it's difficult for anyone to contradict your theories. Even when your theories contradict the Bible, a believer will always lose that battle. If they concede, it can be fought inside the finite realm of human rationalism. Intelligence, then, is a tricky thing. And I was thinking, just just ask Satan. You have to ask yourself, he wasn't so brilliant and so superior You have to ask yourself, would he be who he is? I'm sure his arrogance would still be there, but you get the point. didn't help that he was smarter than everybody else around him. Intelligent people err on the side of self-sanctification. They say, I don't need God. I'm doing fine, can't you see? I'm at the top of the heap. I'm doing just fine. I don't need to be sanctified. You can keep your supernatural mumbo-jumbo to yourself, and they're that rude now. Self-sanctification. True faith is a surrender. There's that key word that kept coming up on Tuesday. True faith is a surrender in total recognition of our inability to be spiritual, to figure God out. The self-sanctifier puts God in a box via human rationalism, then makes his choices about that perversion of God, which is really a different God. They say, let me rationalize. Before I go listening to your gospel, let me rationalize this out. And they hack off anything supernatural. And they say, I will deal from the very heights of natural intellect in down. I won't deal with anything above that. Well, that, that conversation has ended at that point. It has ended. Where does that leave God the Holy Spirit's conviction, convicting ministry about the gospel? if it's hacked off right here. So why even broach that with a person? They don't have the humility necessary to even be evangelized, to be converted. They're still struggling. So the self-sanctifier puts God in a box via human rationalism, then makes his choices about that perversion of God. He's not even talking about the same God at that point. So as the Spirit was teaching me on Tuesday, I got this vision of the flesh and the Spirit, the human spirit in view even. On one hand, the, quote, new self is waving a white flag saying, I surrender. Of course I surrender. I surrender to you, O sovereign Lord. But standing in the way is my flesh. So as Paul intimates in Romans 7, you know, I don't do the things I want to do, etc. For example, I realize that whenever I lose sight of God, and this is an experiential thing, and I hope you know what I mean. Figuratively speaking, I lose sight of God, or the gospel, or my position in Christ. It's really just my flesh blocking my view of God. So that frustrates my own sanctification. Until you surrender, your flesh is literally standing in the way, blocking your view of God. Surrender means living the gospel reality, enjoying the truth of our position in Christ. Now this was the highlight of our last lessons, our last lesson, or two even. This becomes our sanctification. Now, say you say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense, but what about all the doing and all that stuff? Am I supposed to be a doer like James says in one, James 1.22, be an effectual doer? Yeah. But he's not talking about this particular point. He was arguing a different argument at that point. It's related, but it was a different tact altogether. So concentrate. Again, surrender means living the gospel reality, enjoying the truth of our position in Christ. This becomes our sanctification. So you can take all the things you think about, you know, I got this five-year plan, this ten-year plan, and so, you know, my sanctification is going to be like right here in five and then like right here in ten. And you got all these like sort of stepping stones that you've got all, you know, because you're smart, you know, and you got all these things, and you're like, I'm gonna read the Bible once a year for the first two years, and then twice a year for the next three, and then three times a year from five to ten years, by then I'm gonna be like a spiritual giant, I'm gonna have so much scripture memorized, how could I not be sanctified, right? No. Meanwhile, you got somebody who is madly in love with Jesus Christ tends to the spiritual life, takes the grace that God gives them, is growing like a weed, and is sanctified ten times more, if we were to quantify it, you know what I mean, than the person who's on this whacked-out treadmill that they built for themselves. So this becomes our sanctification. Some of you have to change your legalistic, your religious-type treadmill thinking that sanctification is this, you know, grinding to-do list. (laughs) So this was the highlight of Tuesday's lesson to me, and it's consistent with what the Spirit's been building up to for weeks now. I realize by now I sound like a broken record, but the Spirit's not in the habit of repeating things unless they are necessary for you. Let me see if I can state this succinctly. He's been saying this for weeks now, but it's really, it's a difficult thing to teach, to be totally honest with you. Because it's, a, it's not the human mindset to think this way. Sanctification is simplified. Sanctification is a state of being. Not a series of checkboxes. Being implies doing. However, the opposite is not true. Being in love, grateful, hopeful, confident, etc. These are the essence of sanctification. compare that to Galatians 5:22 to 23 the fruit of the spirit per se again focus on this sanctification is a state of being you are being sanctified you are sanctified it's a state of being it becomes you you are sanctified but it's not a series of check boxes folks it's not Well, that was yesterday, and today's today, so I'm one day more sanctified. That's not how this works, folks. Being implies doing. However, the opposite is not necessarily true. Being in love, grateful, hopeful, confident, etc. These are the essence of sanctification. And I just threw this up here. Think about the fruit of the Spirit for for a moment. Just look at it. There's no... Look, there's no particular order. It's not like, okay, today I'm going to study out Philo and Agape and Philadelphia love, and then I can take the you know that real big one in the middle, you know, the greatest of these is love, you know, first Corinthians 13:13. 13, 13. <sighs> Got the big one out of the way. <laughs> I'm this much sanctified, and there's only nine. So then the next week I'm going to study out, you know, joy. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, give thanks for everything. Oh, wait a minute, thankfulness is in there too, isn't it? You know what I mean? Uh, That's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 18. Oh, man, i do that. Another good one, huh? And then you put yourself on this whacked out treadmill that does nothing but make you a religious moron. Brings you back to point A. You're stuck at the starting gate because you don't understand what he's trying to do in you, through you, for you. We don't bring glory to God by trying to do love or try to do goodness or do self-control. We are these things. They become us. That's very different, folks. We don't do the fruit of the Spirit. These things describe the estate of sanctified man. A little bit more on sanctification, simplified... If the Holy Spirit is the host of the spiritual life, I think, if, I think that's a true way to think about it. Who's your host? Who's leading you around? Who's on, you know, who do you, you know, who's got his arm out like this and you kind of hook you're in? Who's your host for the evening? It's God the Holy Spirit. So if he's the host of the spiritual life, being transcendent, that's that Greek word, huperbalo we've seen, then his fruit in believers must also be transcendent. Above natural. Supernatural. Then his fruit in believers must also be transcendent. We don't then do spiritual things. We are them. Our deeds are merely the evidence. Now there are arguments. That's what James is talking about, particularly in James 2. There are arguments. John talks about it. Jesus talked about it. You shall know them by For all the things we talked about in the first 20 hours of this series. There is evidence that does disprove the existence of saving faith. We're not going to get into that. We're talking about being saved. We're in experiential sanctification now. What does that mean? Well, if God the Holy Spirit is a spirit, supernatural we have a human spirit that's supernaturally equipped for spiritually appraised things, then the fruit that we bear in his name is also going to be supernatural, is also going to be transcendent. We don't do spiritual things. We are them. Our deeds are merely the evidence. For example, think of it this way. We don't do thankfulness, do we? I mean, how do you do thankfulness? You express it somehow, but you don't do thankfulness. As the Spirit pointed out on Tuesday, being full of the Spirit means being ever thankful, though. Go to Colossians 3.15. Yet there it is in Scripture that says we ought to be ever thankful. We ought to be thankful What he's doing is bringing together the obvious that to be sanctified means to be thankful. These things become your sanctification. You're not on a treadmill, in other words. This is what it means to be full of the Spirit. It means to be thankful, always, to be ever thankful. Why? Because he's going to bring into remembrance the things that really matter, you know, starting with that. And as long as, and whenever that is brought into view in a believer's life, not an unbeliever's life, not a professing believer's life, a believer's life, there's going to be a response in the soul, encouraged by the Spirit, enlightened, if you would, by the human spirit, to be ever thankful. Colossians 3.15 Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and what? Be thankful. Be it. I not say do thankful. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We've seen the parallels to the filling of the Spirit already multiple times. With all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with thankfulness In your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Notice how Paul first makes the most intimate statement first in verse 15. He says, Be thankful, because that's what it means to be sanctified. These things become your sanctification. Be thankful that's the key to the following two verses verse 16 with thankfulness verse 17 giving thanks the transcendent fruit is that which exists in the heart verse 15 let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful we've seen it many times lately in first thessalonians 5 16 18 that gratitude for all that the lord god has accomplished for us at the cross is at the epicenter of the spiritual life. In other words, we should never, that's why I use that term, living the gospel reality. We should never lose sight of that. That's life for us. Think about that. That's life for us. If it wasn't for that, none of that, we wouldn't even be having this discussion. You wouldn't understand spiritually praised things. That's life to us. That's the epicenter for us. Him and His cross. Jesus Christ, His person and His work. That's why we have communion once a month. To remember the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is the epicenter of our lives. And whenever we relate to him directly, whenever we stop with our ridiculous, hectic lives, stop and face him face to face, I mean, come on, don't you just want to love him? Isn't that what this is all about? When you stop and face him and say, oh my word, why am I a miserable crank? Seriously, why am I a miserable crank? Oh, I got up on the wrong side of the bed. Just write it somewhere in a diary and shut up. Seriously. Get it out of your system and shut up. And then go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm I'm an idiot. i got everything to be thankful for. Seriously, I've got everything to be thankful for. That gratitude, that thankfulness, that's what... I was alluding to earlier. If you read the Bible, just read the New Testament. Just go with it and look for gratitude. Or if you've got a nice little Bible app, look up the word thankfulness or giving thanks or gratitude or thanksgiving or, you know, gratefulness. These kinds of things, you might be shocked how often it shows up and how central that one thing. And you don't do gratitude. You are it. You don't do gratitude thankfulness. You are thankful. That is your sanctification. Do you get it? Your sanctification is not running out and doing things. You will do them, but that's like inconsequential. Your sanctification is actually living a life that you're grateful for now that five years ago you were an ungrateful brat. And before you were saved, you were a jackass still in your sin trying to self-sanctify yourself. Think about that. Your sanctification is what you're going to experience ultimately forever and ever in heaven, and all you're ever going to want to do is fall down and worship him. Amen? Yeah, that's your sanctification. That's where he's taking you. It's not about doing this and walking the old lady across the street. You might do that. But that is not your sanctification. Your sanctification is who you are, what he's changing you into being, getting rid of all the garbage So, we've seen it many times lately, again, that the cross and Jesus Christ, from faith to faith, that's the epicenter of the spiritual life. More on sanctification simplified. If we are to understand true sanctification, we must understand that it cannot be achieved in the absence of a grateful heart. That's the part that is something we all have to reconcile um, when we think about uh, even the unsaved. Look, salvation sanctification, um, they're all the same thread as far as God sees it. But if you don't have a grateful heart, I'm telling you folks, something's missing. I'm not saying, you know, we all, you know, we can all be little bratty little jackasses. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you literally stop being a little brat and you stop throwing your little tantrum. And you stop and you're facing Jesus Christ. If you don't weep in gratitude. I don't mean outwardly even. I mean just being overwhelmed by what he did for you. Only on the cross, nothing else in view, you, my friend, have a problem. That was the first 20 hours. You see, gratitude begins at salvation. If gratitude is your sanctification, not only, but a key element of it, you're not grateful. you might have a problem. So if we are to understand true sanctification, we must understand that it cannot be achieved in the absence of a grateful heart. The cross is the mainstay of a believer's gratitude. And that's just the way it is, folks. So says the Bible. A saved person is a grateful person. A grateful person is a lot of things. Obedient, among many things. But I don't want to digress. For example, as the Spirit has pointed out, we have been (coughs) predestined to suffer. Hardly the reason for gratitude by human rationalism. Right? I mean, how many thinkers, how many natural thinkers are going to say, you know... You should be grateful that you're suffering. Not many. <laughs> However, as the Spirit added on Tuesday, sanctification is purifying our motivations. Testing by fire burns off impurities. Go to 1 Peter 1 6. So, what he's doing then is, and we'll run with this analogy for a little bit here because it is prevalent in the New Testament especially, the assayer's terms. What he's doing when he's sanctifying you is he's purifying you. He's burning off the slag, let's call it that way. Testing by fire burns off impurities. 1 Peter six. "...in this you greatly rejoice." Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, is dokimion, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, all assayers' terms, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when he burns off all the slag, what's left is a grateful heart is a fully sanctified heart. That's not going to happen all in time. But ultimately, we're going to be like pure gold. No more impurities. But that's what remains when he burns off the slag, when he purifies you. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the deliverance of your souls. The salvation, the deliverance of your souls. Peter is directly speaking about sanctification here. He's saying that in order to enjoy the benefits of being sanctified, it is God's good intention to burn off The impurities in you, the remnants or vestiges of sin, so to speak, or at least their control over you, which really is an issue of not trying to dress up the piggy. That's not what's going on here. But rather change your perspective about its place in your life. What is sin to you? Paul says it. Why would we live in sin if we've already been free from it? May it never be. Why would we live in that thing? But we do. So God's got to get rid of that stuff. Why do we go back to the, to the mire? Why do we do that? And then why, when we grow up in Christ, why, when we're more and more progressively sanctified, do we do less of that? Because he's burned off more of those impurities. You're closer to pure gold than you were before and your hearts changed and you're way more grateful listen the more you learn about this this is the point folks an unbeliever can read this cover to cover and never be changed a believer the more they read this the more thankful they are the more grateful they are for some of us who think we have a cup full of goodness to our account God may peek into that cup, light a match, and burn it all to ashes. But that's what purification... This is gold being purified, by the way. I just wanted you to understand a little bit more about the language being used, since they are what we call assayers' terms. Assayers are like metallurgists that purify uh, metals, work with alloys even. But we're talking about purifying something and gold is in view but it technically could be any uh, metal precious metal from ore but that's what it looks like and you see the top layer there's ugly stuff right here that's not really gold that's called slag okay the so there's a reason why the bible consistently uses assay as terminology like dokimion first peter 1 7 and phrases like gold refined by fire Or Dokimazzo, remember that from 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves, examine yourselves, test yourselves with Perazzo. Remember that in 2 Corinthians 13.5. It's because the imagery is useful. Your filth is like slag in assay's terms. I just took this from Wikipedia. Slag is the glass-like byproduct left over after a desired metal has been separated, i.e. smelted, from its raw ore. That's how they purify the metal. You know, this, you know, gold doesn't just come out of the ground as like this 24-karat gold nugget. It's not like the movies, right? is really just a painted stone, right? It <laughs> doesn't come out like that. It's all like striated and the ore's got, you know, it's not pure. So you have to smelt it, you have to heat it up, and what's left over is slag. To put this into perspective right now, you have a cup full of ore. And God, by sanctifying you, is putting your faith to the test, putting you to the test, by fire, and is purifying you by burning off the slag. In heaven, we'll be like a purified ingot of gold. But we're not there yet. But that's the picture of ultimate sanctification. Pure gold. We're going to be purified. No more slag be burned off my wife Tammy sent me a poem from a book she's been reading about King David that speaks to this cup filling exercise it's called treasures from ivory palaces by Martha Snell Nicholson I just want to read it to you one by one he took them from me all the things I valued most until I was empty-handed Every glittering toy was lost. And I walk earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. So I held my hands toward heaven and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull, that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. So I was reflecting on this cup analogy when I read that, and in keeping with the cup analogy, ask yourselves, what do we use cups for? Because that comes up in the Bible as well. What do we use cups for? I mean, well, most of us use them to drink from, right? I mean, that's what cups are for. And what a wonderful visual aid we have up here on the board. Drinking cups. And I don't mean red solo cups. Maybe they are. Maybe in your world they're red solo cups. You're like, that's all I got. (laughs) Headstand. (laughs) let's get back on track what a wonderful visual aid we have drinking cups God fills our cups purifying the contents as he sanctifies us removing the slag and we drink from it throughout our daily lives again God fills our cups purifying the contents as he sanctifies us Removing the slag, and we drink from it throughout our daily lives mark ten thirty eight to thirty nine john eighteen eleven first corinthians ten twenty one let 's quickly look at a few passages where this analogy arises i 'm not going to spend any real time on it, but I want you to understand that this cup drinking analogy is also in the Bible, and you should understand how it relates to sanctification, that we all have a cup to drink. Now, in context, it'll make more sense. Look at Mark 10.38, Mark 10.38. So whatever you're drinking, he wants it to be as pure as possible, in other words he wants it to be purified mark 10:38 but jesus said to them you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that i drink remember this was the um, sons of zebedee scene remember that or to be baptized with the baptism with which i am baptized they said to him we are able and jesus said to them the cup that i drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, up here on the board. The cup that I drink, Jesus was talking about suffering and even death. No one has ever been sanctified to the degree he was, which means that suffering is a definite part of sanctification. We must drink that which God places in our cups. And today he might fill your cup up with suffering. And a humble person, a sanctified person, is a continuously what? Grateful person. You might go like this, uh-oh, that's going to hurt, but thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Because every time I've drank from the cup that you've given me, not the cup of demons, the cup that you've given me, I've grown. For as long as I didn't spit it out, for as long as I persevered, for as long as I kept the faith, ran the course by the rules, as long as I did those things, I always grew. We must drink that which God places in our cups. In the garden in Gethsemane, when Peter tried to stop the Romans from seizing Jesus, Jesus knowing he was about to suffer horribly, Drank from that cup. Go to John 18.11. John 18.11. You may have that insight, not that way, but you may have that insight that you're headed for something really painful. And nobody else in the world needs to know about it. It's not necessary. I know there are a lot of people that just because they're comfortable enough have intimated to me that they're going through a lot of big things in their life right now. and Nobody else knows about it. You know, even the things that he's doing in my life, these changes in the ministry, they're all wonderful. But you know what? That takes an adjustment for a guy like me. I was telling DJ earlier, for the last seven years, more plus, way more than that now, but I'm talking about just the ministry proper that started in 08. Since then, it's been, it's always push, push forward and push forward, and everybody's, you know, like, ah, you know bunch of screaming, whining sheep. You know however sheep do when you hit them or whatever, right? And it's always been this like right and then he's saying, All right. Now I want you to come back a little bit. And I'm like, Well, wait a minute. That's like not even my wheelhouse. That's not my zone. It's been an adjustment, folks. It's hard. You know, like that thing. It's not always, you know, what you think. And all I'm saying is that there are a lot of people in here that, and I'm assuming everybody's going, that are going through things that are heavy, that are part of sanctification. A lot of people are realizing, oddly enough, that they they were wrong about their own sanctification. They were wrong about a lot of things in their own life. And they, have thank God, in humility, stuck it out and said, oh, well, I'm smart, but I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm educated, but I'm an idiot. Right? Join the crowd. You know. And that's okay. That's part of drinking the cup. It's part of burning off. You know, fire's hot, fire burns. Being purified hurts. Think of Jesus. John 18 11. So Jesus said to Peter, who, you know, you know Peter, right? Mr. Foot in the Mouth. I'll stop them. Cuts the guy's ear off. Right. <laughs> All right, Peter. Nice going. All right. Trying to stop the plan of God for the salvation of mankind. Nice, Peter. Had a way to think outside the box, outside of your own little world. <laughs> but what Jesus say? Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Aren't those magnificent words? I think we're going to stop right there. Seriously. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? How many of you right now are saying to yourself, yeah, that cup has been full of pain and suffering and all sorts of things. Not saying, you know, when God wasn't looking, I didn't top it off with a few little, you know, Spike it with my own stuff. And the hangover is my fault. Not saying that either. But in all fairness, shall we not drink it? You are who you are right now. Amen? God created you knowing you would be the person you are this moment, this second. Make it that timely. This moment in time. And He loved you so much. Here's some gratitude. Knowing your ridiculousness that he sent his son. That's your gratitude. That's what it means to drink that cup with all gratitude. And do it faithfully. Because you know that that thing that you're doing, as painful as it might be, brings glory to God. Who, by the way, saved you Saved you. I don't care what he asked me to do. I do, but you know what I mean. I don't really care anymore. This came up on Tuesday as well. I don't care. How many times I get attacked in a day? And I know I'm not the only one, so don't think I'm being that way. But I don't care anymore. Everybody's got an opinion of everybody else. Everybody's got something to say about this person. Who cares anymore? The only opinion that matters in your life is God's. So bring it on. (laughs) Right? Show me the cup. Show me the way. If this is the cup, shall I not drink it? Shall you not drink it? Anybody going to a cross? Anybody going to get slung up on a cross? Spit on? Punched? Anybody going to be humiliated? Anybody perfect and going to get humiliated? No, that disqualifies from anything near the cross. Which only heightens our level of what? gratitude. And if you have that gratitude, as we started off this evening, if you have that gratitude, folks, listen to my voice. That is your sanctification. That is it. Living a life of gratitude, being thankful. That is your sanctification. Because that's going to be what it is forever and ever in heaven. And we're going to love being able to express that gratitude to Him for all of eternity. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask your blessings as we take what we've learned. Out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Thank you.